Time now for the nationally syndicated radio show, The World of Lori Zook. And now, here she is, the smart, the sexy, the savvy, divine Miss C. And welcome to the show. Um, I have with me Danny Shedwin. We are doing part two of his kind of his life story. He's a very interesting person. Been everywhere, done everything, knows everybody. How do you like that, Danny, for an intro? Well, I know you. That that certainly adds up to uh, right around 100 percent. And uh, thanks for offering to have me back. Oh, you're welcome. We never finished our original list of, of things that you've done and stories that you have. I don't even think we got halfway through the list. But let, let's start here with uh, the message from Clarence from the Alabama Blind Boys. Yeah, I, I uh, recorded those fellows on video. Uh, that's when they, at least uh, there was a set of twins there. It looks like uh, since I saw them perform for the White House, that maybe one of them is either uh, incapacitated or has passed on. But I... I I had seen them when I was a very little boy. My father took me and my my two younger brothers at the time, another one came along later, to go and see them. I, if I remember correctly, I was about five years old, but I remembered, remembered them from way back then and then uh, got the opportunity to talk with Clarence and, and the Alabama uh, Blind Boys in the 90s, and I recorded them. And, uh, we talked about this and talked about that and a little bit of their history, but Clarence left me with something that was really profound, and I like repeating profundity. And let me see if I can get it right. He says, as long as we have dope, there is no hope. <laughs> and I thought that was uh, a pretty powerful thing to say. And it's interesting, you know, to be around, uh, to be around people who, who have uh, lost their sight or, or no sight. And if, if I remember correctly, because I haven't heard this for a long time, I believe that they were born that way. But there, and they were at a certain school, and that's how the, or a certain facility, and that's how the group was formed. But, but I thought that there was triplets uh, from, but you know, I'm going back to when I was five years old. I can't quite remember, but I was so glad when the president uh, had them uh, at one of his functions because um, that's something that I had known about for many, many years, and the general public was unaware of them, and they're very fine people. Now, this is before my time, so are, are the Alabama Blind Boys musicians? I don't know. They're who the... singers. They're singers. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah, they, they uh, um, you, you just haven't heard them because they're, they're performing quite a bit now. Um, it seems like they've, they've escalated uh, their, their performances. Uh, I know that Clarence, uh, I think I read it on Wikipedia that Clarence is not traveling with them anymore because of health reasons. He's in his, uh, in his 80s. And, uh, I mean, they've just been around for, forever. I mean, I, you know, just forever. And there's another group that a lot of folks get uh, mixed up with them, as I did, called the Mississippi Blind Boys. They don't call the Five Blind Boys, just that they called the Five Blind Boys. Okay. And Clarence traded, traded me out on that because I thought that they're, and they're also a very profound gospel singing group. All right. Now, you also were going to talk about Emma Frazier. Do you want to share a story? Ah. <laughs> Emma, Emma Frazier um, was a person, the kind of person that really touches your heart. She has, she had an interesting story. In fact, I designed a poster um, about her story um, because it because even after Emma had had passed on, it started to change. But Emma was a crow woman who married a Blackfoot woman, a Blackfoot man. Excuse me, like you know. Okay. Me, but she married a Blackfoot man who went to Morehouse and apparently went to Morehouse and became the third Indian doctor in the country. And their marriage was considered taboo. In fact, among the Indians, their marriage was considered. Uh, interracial. Well, Diane Carroll, uh, um, uh, she's the Carroll of, um, oh, I can't, I can't even remember his name, the, the fellow that was all in the family. Uh, his wife. Oh, Archie Bunker her guy. Her grandfather. Car- Carol O'Connor. 
Archie Bunker wife, yeah. Okay. Carol O'Connor, Diane O'Connor, thank you. Uh, it, her, her grandfather photographed the crow when they were moving from independence to reservation. And uh, Diane Carroll found some of the slates and got them restored and put them on a tour around the United States from the, for the National, uh, National Archives. And when they came here, I met, I met, uh, uh, I just met um, um, Emma, told her about it. Emma was about five, four foot ten or so. And she was, I think she was 92 at the time when this was in the 80s. Okay. And she went there, and this cute little lady is standing there saying, oh, look, there's so-and-so. Oh, look, and these old, old pictures. And she said, oh, don't you remember so-and-so? And she had another friend with her. And uh, the the deal just was just so, it was so magic, so magic. Uh, the, the fact this famous woman, famous man, had these marvelous, marvelous uh, uh, photographs, doing the things that photographs do, uh, capturing time. And uh, here was a lady that found herself in those old photographs. It was just, it was in, in, in uh, it was just uh, a person that just, she just tore your heart up. She just got in your heart. And she, even though her husband was gone quite some time before I met her, she still had the pride and the grace of a woman who loved her husband. I thought that was kind of fantastic in, in today's mm-hmm. uh, society. Yeah. Now, I just have to ask you, you know, I, I look at your list of all these famous people that you've met are you just in the right place at the right time because you know your average person doesn't have a have a a list like this i've been asked that over and over and i don't i don't know i i I don't know how it happens i just i mean i just most of my life i've just been messing around you know just messing around and i'm so curious and i you know because of my experiences with jerry lee and and people when I was really young teenager and stuff I, i know how to talk to them same thing with athletes i i know how to talk to them when um, the reporters couldn't get interviews with Bo Jackson or they couldn't get interviews with this guy and that guy. I had a little, I had a publication at the time and I had a little way of talking to them and, and getting, getting them to come out. And, uh, but that's because I was an athlete. So I knew what to say. I had an advantage, right. but, um, it's, it's just, uh, I was in radio and uh, a radio station that, you know, all the artists came to when they came to town. They'd all come by the radio station, and uh, you know, all the way from Rosie Greer to Stevie Wonder, Natalie Cole, uh, all of them uh, used to come by the radio station, and you just you just connected because we were all in the same business. We were in the entertainment business. Right. I can kind of relate to that because I'm a musician. So when I interview musicians, it's easier for me because I know music. So it's it's I know what questions that I, you know, I'm interested in. I want to ask where if it came down to me interviewing someone in sports, it would be a lot harder. I I, I generally research all of my shows and all my guests. So I have some idea. Um, But if it came to sports, I kind of would be in trouble. (laughs) You know, it just wouldn't be the same thing. Well, yeah, it's just kind of a a matter of where you've been, you know. Yeah been involved in and, and I like you know it's just it's just the way my life has gone I, I don't look at it as anything special to, to me they're just people that I met and uh, uh, they, if they happen to be famous I've met a whole bunch of people that aren't famous so, so right and nobody asked about them <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it's all the famous people on your list now tell me about your art performance uh, sitting on your father's knee you have the, the fat pencil story Oh well, I, there's a couple of stories there. I learned okay. I learned how to draw when I was four years old, sitting on my father's knee. I believe he either he 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 either worked a, a graveyard schedule, which was I think from eight till till uh, two or three in the morning, or he worked a swing shift, which was from three to twelve. And so while mom was working, dad was babysitting, and there was only three of us at the time, and. And, uh, and uh, my younger brothers were one was one year younger and the other was three years younger. So my dad would have me draw dogs and horses. I could draw dogs and horses at four years old, and I could also print. And then he showed me how to connect the printed uh, letters together with a little um, ascender or descender. And so when I went to kindergarten, I already had a form of cursive writing uh, down. But being in the third grade, 
myself, Martin Green, Jesse Thomas, the late Jesse Thomas, the late Carl Mackey, and a guy named Tim Olson. Some, for some reason, we formed our own little art group, a little drawing group, and we would get together, mm-hmm. and we would decide what we were going to draw, and then we'd come back together at the appointed time, and we would uh, decide whose was best. Well, there was this national contest that came up in the fourth grade, fire prevention contest in the fourth grade. We all got together, we showed our work, and everybody agreed that my work was was best. And we were a little concerned about Jesse because Jesse had started to trace. Instead of being original, he'd started to trace. Okay. So we turned all of our work in. Uh, the... Uh, the process happened. We forgot about it, and then suddenly we had a meeting. We went and asked my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Leroy, what a lady. <laughs> and Mrs. Leroy knew nothing about the contest. She hadn't heard a couple of weeks after that. Uh, it came in, and Jesse had won the national contest by tracing, with the tracing. Well, with that cheating. us deeply, our group broke up, and uh, yeah. we all remained friends, of course, all of our lives, but that's, we stopped our little group. And then, you know, you get to be older, and you look back, and you say, we were eight years old. What were we doing? You know, we were just eight years old, and no one put us together. It was something that happened serendipitously, you know, on our own. I can't remember who started it, but Carl Mackey, the late Carl Mackey, usually had the best drawing, and we couldn't quite figure it out. And then he told us he had a fat pencil. So we were using the regular pencils that you write with, right. and Carl had this fat pencil, and so there was it was just his, his lines just looked more graceful and and more beautiful as he draw as he drew whatever it was that he drew because we were all good drawers and and uh, Carl Mackey had the fat pencil. Good story, and I, I'm I'm going to jump in here. I know why we relate so well now. My parents were were professional artists. They were art directors. So I grew up thinking drawing and painting. I grew up thinking everybody did it. And when I was four, I drew a picture of a dog. I think they framed it. And you know, when I looked at it, I go, it really at four, it really looked like a picture of a dog. But I always loved drawing. But imagine, you know, when you get older and you're in school. And it's something that you think everybody else does, and then you find out it's not, and it's an extracurricular activity, you know, like art. And you're going, wait a minute, I've that, been doing is, this for years. I thought everybody did it. That is interesting how that works, isn't it? It's just what you're doing, you know. Right. And it kind of relates to, like, you know, meeting these people, these different people and stuff. It's it was just just what I was doing. Um, I went home, I think, last year, ran into a, uh, a friend, friend of mine who was an attorney, and he said, he said, hey, you've had this wonderful life. And I said, well, you know, I said, it's, it's just what I was doing. I, I don't see it as any big deal, really. You know, I mean, uh, just it's just what I was doing. Well, to you, you it's know? to you, it's, nor- to you it's normal, but it sounds like it's a book to me because there's a, a lot of people that you've met, and from a historical perspective, I think it could be pretty interesting. You'd have to write the book, Laurie. No, I don't know. <laughs> I do radio. I don't know that I'm such a great writer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can take a ghostwriter or two. That's just, that's at this stage of my life. That's I know yeah. what that takes. Well, nowadays you, you know, can you can you can yeah now a lot of work. You you can dictate to your computer though. Now they have those programs where you can just speak and it dictates the text <laughs> right to the screen. That that might work. That might work. Now tell me about yeah, also. Or, or you can get a good grip by listening to your program. Yes. Yes, you can, and, and that's why I wanted to do this show. Now, tell me about the Ballfield Sandpipers and Smooches. Oh, what was the second one, Ballfield? And what was uh, the, ball, the Ballfield Sandpipers and Smooches. Oh, okay. Ballfield was of personal interest to me. I had I, I, when my office. I just closed it out. Finished closing it out yesterday. Was in a part of the uh, of the county called uh, White Center. And in 1964, I had played baseball there in a, in a state championship uh, game. And so when I, but I didn't really know where I was in 64. So when I, my office, when I opened my office, there was the first uh, uh, retail, I mean, on the street office that I'd had. I wasn't operating out of a big house. I wasn't sharing space. It was uniquely my own. And I was just wandering around the neighborhood looking around and, and I kind of got a 
a sense of something, starting to feel something familiar, you know, kind of deja vu, but not real clearly deja vu, but kind of something was familiar. Well, it turned out to be the field that I played at in 1964 in that championship. Okay. So I, they were lining the field. They were putting the, 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 the lines on the field for baseball. And I sat there, and I just kind of watched it. It was a, it was a, a nice day, sunny day, temperature and stuff. And I watched it, and, and, and the guy that was doing it was doing it seemed very strange to me. So after they finished, I walked out on the field. Now the, 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 the lines going from home plate to first base are to determine whether there's a foul ball or not. Well, the way, <laughs> the way that this guy lined the field, he lined the field so it went right straight through the bag. And I said, you know, I just happened to be on the scene to get that photograph. You know, and anybody right. that's played baseball will see that. And, in fact, the guys on, that were on my team, I sent it to all the guys on my team, and they said, that's the reason we lost that game. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of like that. Now, uh, Sandpipers was a funny thing. I was at the Pacific Ocean. And I was always really fascinated by the, the sand, sandpipers, the little birds. When the, when the wave would come in, they would run away. When the wave would go out, they would follow the wave out. And I just, I just, I just, they just cracked me up. They were so entertaining. And so I, I photographed it. And that was my first big cell, selling image. Uh, it, it, went for, it went for between $800 and $900 back in the 80s. It was just, uh, just a chance that I was there. Smooches was... Uh, Two horses, two walking horses. I know you like horses. Mm-hmm, I do. That were ponies, and and they were they were playing around. And it was a dark northwest day. There wasn't very much uh, light, very much sunlight, and they just got to quote horsing around. Uh, end of quote. And I photographed so many sports, uh, NBA, NFL, and, and Major League Baseball, that I caught them uh, up heads up, and they were playing with each other, and it, I just, when I got the image back and got the print back, I said, oh, smooches, it looks like they're kissing each other, and that's, that's what that was about. Now, let's talk about your photography, because I've seen some of it sometimes on, on Facebook. Talk about your perspective in ph- photography. Well, I, you know, I've always, I've never been in the, bag, in the, in the envelope, I've always been kind of outside the envelope. I've always looked at things a little differently. Mm-hmm. I've always looked at things uh, in terms of what were they, um, what is it, what could it be, and, and that's that's kind of my approach. And, and so when I understand what it is, then I start to thinking, well, what else could it be? And that 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 area of what it could be is where I go uh, with my images. And it's it's really funny because uh, some images that I get back uh, that I dislike uh, today, uh, three years later, I'll be asking myself, why didn't I work with this? You know, you, I just kind of have to be ready for certain images at at the times. And sometimes it's the colors. Okay. Uh, and, and it's, it, it, you know, sometimes it's just, I mean, I mean like you take a, um, say, a, a zebra. And because of the contrast of the zebra black and white, I may play with that as many different ways as I can play with that twisted, folded, knit, bounce it to see when I get to a point that I like it. And when I get to the point that I like it, um, maybe no one else will, but that's when, I, that's when I'm finished. I got you. You're right, thinking outside the box. And so do you do anything with your photography as far as selling it? Or you just do it for fun? I'm... I'm I'm developing my library now, I, uh, my images now. I've, I've got a, a CD that has about 65 images on it. And then I'm, oh, I've got at least that many more. And I, I think all told when I finish, I'll have about, I will have selected about a, a close to 1,000 images. That's a lot. That's a lot. Sounds like a fun hobby, well, though, some right? Of it, some of it is just purely ab- abstract. Um, this, it's not photographs, it's colors. I had this one series, and in that manipulation of about seven different colors, I came up with over 400 uh, perspectives on it. So some of those, you know, 40 or 50 of those would be, you know, bumps that number up a little bit. Okay. Now tell me a bit about the Sonics Championship Parade and John Spellman. 
John's John. <laughs> He's a great guy. Um, when the Sonics won the NBA championship in 1979, I had gone back to university to study, University of Washington to study, and I was down um, by the beginning of the parade uh, when it was started to happen, and I thought I would record it for Perspective Radio. And John Spellman was the county executive at the time, who later became the governor. And I asked him, you know, if if it would be okay if I would record it. And John Spellman was this wonderful man, and he uh, he just said, yes, of course, because for him it was, you know, this was his championship and it was his baby. So um, I recorded it, <laughs> and one of those things that kind of I still got it. I don't know where that is buried in the other work, <laughs> but I've still got it. And uh, it was it was really kind of a fascinating thing for Seattle. It was the first uh, professional sports championship uh, here, and uh, it was it was it was tremendously well done. Uh, Charlie Royer was the mayor. He was formerly uh, with the ABC affiliate. Oh, excuse me, NBC affiliate before he became mayor, mayor of the city. And it was just very, real, very well done, uh, a, a good, good uh, event. Sounds like you're in the right place at the right time most of the time. Well, that one I went after because I wanted to, I just wanted to have a, a record of it because, I mean, it's the, it was the first. I, and I have a tendency to kind of want to do things when they're first, you know, when things are first. I, I, I've done a, been involved with a lot of things that were first. Now, they may have may not mean anything to anybody in the future, but it's kind of like, I, that, I kind of, I'm interested in that. Uh, it sounds, well, that, that's the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit, you know, really is, is the beginning part. Yeah, it is. So it's more exciting. Yeah, it is. You know, now tell me a little bit about, I, in, fact, in fact, I just, go ahead. I, I just had this experience with, uh, Alexander Osborne, now Alexander Hillig. I knew him, he's Ivy Osborne's nephew, and I knew him when he was in high school and he was getting started in photography, and I talked to him about different things. And he messed around with this and messed around with that, and he did a little publication. One was called um, um, Speak Out, and then uh, I found one the other day, removing his second one, and it's about two inches by three inches. And a little teeny thing, and uh, he now lives in New Zealand, and he's just done a huge book. I guess it's just huge. I haven't seen it. He was just in town uh, I, on some family stuff, so I didn't get a chance to, to hook up with him. But, uh, you know, it, it's, kind of, it's very interesting to watch this guy start um, with this one thing, kind of like tabloid. In fact, I think it was done on regular bond paper. And then do this other thing, which uh, is two inches by three inches. And now he has this book. It was too heavy for him to bring my copy back with him okay. when he came back to New Zealand, and it's all all uh, um, big name uh, rock groups. Now, big name, big people. What was you had sent me something about Ozzy Osbourne? Well, that's what I just told you. That's about. it. That was, that's what that it was, is. Uh, that's that little blue book. Yes. That's, okay. Got it. Yeah, that was the second one. And I was thinking it was the first one because it was so little, but it actually it had this big number two on it. And okay. I, I was telling people, this is his first one. But actually, it was his second one. I got you. All right. Well, we're going to just take a quick commercial break, Danny. We're going to come back, and then I'm going to want to talk about Governor Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. So stay with us. Central Payment, your number one credit card merchant service provider in the industry. Providing e-commerce solutions, POS systems, standalone terminals, mobile apps, and much more, call Central Payment's James Carner at 813-777-4332. Looking for the lowest rates in the industry and number one customer service? Call Central Payment's James Carner at 813-777-4332. That's James Carner, 813-777-4332. Three three two.
consumers. Do you have bad credit? Can't purchase a house or car? Paying too much in interest on your credit cards and loans? Scammed by credit repair companies? There is hope. You can get back on track and do it the right way. Call Credit Education Consultants today at 813-500-6064. That's 813-500-6064. Or go to CreditEducationConsultants.com now and get the help you need. Don't delay. Call today. Mortgage reps and realtor inquiries are also welcomed. back on the world of Lori Zook. I have the most interesting man that I know, Danny Shedwin. This is part two. Uh, And Danny, let's talk about Governor Jimmy Carter because you had an experience with him. I did. uh, And it was a bookmark experience because I almost didn't. Um, I was working in radio and the governor came to the radio station and the way that our floor plan was uh, at the station was kind of like a, a rectangle, and the studio was over in one corner. I was on the opposite side of the building along the wall. That's where our stations were. And I was writing commercials for uh, for the disc jockeys to, to record. Okay. Uh, I, I was selling time, and then we wrote our own commercials. What year? What Someone, year? I, I've forgotten who it was. What year was that? This was seventy three. Okay. Okay. And you were writing commercials. And so um, I was writing commercials, and there was a there was an open space, kind of like a semi conference room between the studio and where I was. And this person, I apologize because I've forgotten who it was, kept coming over and said, "You got to come see this guy." The guy said, "I can't because I've got these commercials there, I've got these deadlines." And he said, and finally, he just wouldn't leave me alone. So I went through the, the room that was between where I was and the studio, and there was this light coming out of the studio into the room. I noticed there was a really bright light, and the lights in that room were off. But there was a light coming out of the, the studio as I'm walking towards the studio. And I'm saying, what in the world? I couldn't understand it. But I was trying to get through this. This, uh, this segment so I could get back to, to, to my deadline. So I went in, and there's this uh, guy in there and a lot of people, the station owner and, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of people, some the local politicians and so forth. And this guy, he had this big smile on his face, and he, he looked up at me, and, and he says, Hi. And I said, oh, no, I'm not buying this. This is a trick. I'm being set up with the Southern guy and so forth. And we just started talking, and we talked a little about this and talked about that, nothing, nothing specific that I can remember. And I said to him, I said, you know, we've got this brand-new restaurant in the city, and it's really, really fine, and it's got Southern cook, you know, I'd like to take you. And he said, fine. So later that evening, we all went down to... Um, what was called the Heritage House is what the name of it was at the time. A lot of a lot of the uh, a lot of the ex uh, artists came through uh, the Heritage House. I can remember uh, the, the the Shy Lights and uh, some of the Motown acts. All um, oh, the group that sang "Rock the Boat." I, I know the I know the people that that, that work with them now. Uh, they came through. At first, it was it was a, a, a off street. Um, Vegas acts, um, and the fellow that was, uh, he was a comedian at the time, and uh, later on became that uh, actor with that little kid, a little Japanese uh, thing with, uh, with uh, martial arts. I forgot the name of the film. He was there. Uh, Kar- karate was Kid? There a lot. Was, was, a was it Karate Kid? Yes. Okay, Lee's yes, right. I'll give credit to Lee. And so, yes. but, all these artists came, came through. Even Billy Eckstein, I came there. I met Billy Eckstein. Spent some time talking with him uh, there. So it was a it was a a, a real nice venue. And uh, Mr. Carter, we went to we went to dinner. And uh, I don't remember seeing him after that, but he was he was such a fine person, such a gentleman, such a uh, person that was receiving person. He was a strong man because he he seemed fearless i mean he just you know you can be around people 
who are afraid to meet people and need to meet, be around people that uh, are comfortable meeting everybody. Right. Uh, and and Mr. Carter was comfortable meeting everybody. He was he was just a very nice person. I'm 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 a fan. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a dead ringer fan for him. Good good story. I enjoyed that one. Uh, what about illiteracy and the hidden problem? 1983, um, a childhood friend of mine. Uh, we were doing um, some some video work. He was with uh, he was with the local ABC affiliate here at the time, and he said, "There's this lady." Um, he says she's doing certain kind of stuff. I think you want to meet her. That's the way he comes to me. No information, just bits and pieces enough to debate me. And so I I met the lady. She was elderly. Uh, I believe she was in her 80s at the time. And, and I was really interested in her story because I had closed down my publication and, it, and rolled it over into video production documentaries. And um, this lady um, was one of the field people that work with um, functional illiterates. And so after talking with her for a while, I really wasn't interviewing her. After talking with her for a while, my crazy brain started thinking about how interesting it would be to not focus on the politicians and not focus on the people that are famous, but focus on the people that are actually doing the work. So we centered our documentary around her and got so much information about things like she said, for example, like when you're going to restrooms in a, in a, in a venue, and she said, they have pictures on the door. I said, yes. She said, one is female, one is male. I said, yes. She said, those are for functional illiterates. She said, that lets them know where, which one's male and which one's female because they can't necessarily read male, female. And she just went to all the different ways of, of how, it's, of how they, they, they keep it quiet, that they, that they are illiterate. And, and we did it uh, in a way that... Um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a slam or embarrassing to anybody, but it was just we did it in a way so that people could understand sometimes why those people who are functional illiterate, illiterate sometimes why it doesn't seem to quite communicate smoothly, uh, so people could have more information and go through these other processes that we that we uh, um, uh, shared with them in the video. Interesting, uh, because yeah. and after that, all my videos. Yeah. After that, that was the way I started doing all my videos. I started doing it with the people that are actually the ones that are actually doing the field work, and then I would embellish it with the you know with the politicians and the right. And the, I have to share. I got to share a quick funny story with you because I kind of understand I, that you know you have the the it depends on the bathroom. Some just say women and some say men. Some have the picture of the woman and some you know now they're trying to make it more universal. So maybe there's a you know a picture of a man or a woman just in the stick figure form. <laughs> Probably about 25 years ago, I was in a restaurant. And this is before I was a dog person, Danny. And there was a picture of a dog on, on each <laughs> door. There was a, there was didn't say men or women. One was a dog squatting. One was a dog lifting its leg not being a dog person no. when I was younger, I walked into the wrong one because I couldn't tell. You know, if you don't know and you don't have animals, you don't know which one is which. So I guess that kind of made me a dog functional illiterate person. But I still to this day remember remember going, thank God nobody was in the men's room when I walked in. Um, so, yes, I understand. I, I guess I am a functional illiterate in that respect, you know. Now, you, you have a whole list here of people. Uh, Jose Canseco, Harold Reynolds, Jim McDaniels, Leon Hendricks, Henry Fields, People from Bremerton, Jesse Griffin, and your childhood friends. So a big topic here. Well, can I say something? Of course. Before we go into the next topic, because sure. I've never had an opportunity to say this, and it's and, and, and a lady a friend of mine who's, who was, in fact, she became the longest survivor in iron lungs, said that it makes certain people very proud. I just like to say, hi, mom. Hi, Mom. Okay. I'm You're very welcome. You're, you certainly can do that. Your mom just had a birthday recently, I remember. Oh, right on. Right on. See? All right. Well, tell, so, tell me about some hear about sure. Henry Fields? Sure. Henry, Henry Fields was a, a basketball player in France that played in Monaco uh, a couple of three years before I did. 
And I, Henry moved from Monaco to Antibes, which is also uh, on the Côte d'Azur, and it's more down towards Nice and Cannes. And he was, uh, he was a giant of guy. He spoke French uh, better than I did. He, he, he had been there long enough to pick up the cultural nuances, which, which I hadn't. I was learning. I was in the process of learning that. Um, and uh, I, there was also a fellow on his team from Los Angeles named Danny Rodriguez, and they had a, they had a very good team. Uh, but Henry was making these trips up to Paris, and he would say, "Hey man, you got to go up to Paris." And I I thought, man, I I can't imagine anything being nicer than this, you know, than you know than the than the French Riviera. I mean, it was just very pleasant living, very pleasant pace, uh, temperature, uh, winter seventy degrees. Uh, you know, all of that. So Henry is now credited with being the person who taught the French how to play basketball because it was difficult to play when I was there because they didn't know how to play. And so Henry, by going up to Paris, getting involved in bigger leagues and seeing and seeing more people and more people seeing him, is now credited uh, with uh, fundamentally teaching the French how to play basketball. Right, and that was your sport. I remember, I think, online seeing pictures of you with basketball teams, correct? Yes. You, you coached. I still coach. This, team, this year I coached uh, on four different teams. Uh, I was in the, uh, at a private school. Um, in fact, I had two boys uh, who were uh, fathered by, I understand, the vice president of Google. Uh, and uh, I went all the way from uh, helping on the 7th and 8th graders, 5th and 6th graders, and then I did 3rd and 4th graders. Uh, there's two teams, 5th and 6th graders, and I did 3rd and 4th graders, which was by myself. It was, it was a real, totally unusual experience from any experience I've had coaching before. Uh, extremely gratifying because it's, it's, an iso- it's totally isolated because it was a Jewish school. Okay. Uh, Jewish private school, and uh, it was just different, different, totally different. Good experience. Sounds like it. And now, what about uh, KYAC AMFM Radio and the Earth, Wind, and Fire experience? Well, that's the radio station that I was that I was with from uh, about a year and a half, from January '73 to I think it was August of '74. And I was selling radio time, but but I was not. Again, I'm not in. I don't think in the box. My what, what they were doing basically was hitting the pavement, going and knocking <coughs> on doors to retailers, mom and pop businesses to get them to advertise on the radio station. That just didn't work with me. Um, so I kept picking around, picking around, and discovered and made my made my market the music business and the recording business. And that's probably why I met so many of the artists ultimately, because that's what I was, what I was dealing with. In 1974, Earth, Wind and Fire released, I think the title of the record was Open Our Eyes. And the, the, the record that they were promoting nationally was called the same, Open Our Eyes, a slow record. Well, I had, I had uh, adapted this program out of out of Los Angeles called uh, a weekend with, and the way that the weekend with worked is that fundamentally it was an illegal commercial. Okay. That in those days, you can a commercial can only be one minute long, and so I made it into a program, three minutes long. So a commercial, uh, the program would have gone would have gone uh, kind of like this. You'd have your opening. You say, "Ladies and gentlemen, it's a weekend with Lori Zook," and now here's Lori Zook. And you say blah 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 blah, and then you, uh, that, that's a record or, or a recording, and then you go to a commercial for thirty seconds, and then you pop back and you say also, the commercial would say also on Lori Zook's label, is a record by Danny Shevlin, and that was the whole idea. You 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 promote you were promoting records by artists that nobody even knew about, and the record companies had them in 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 the, in the warehouse and stuff. And so people were going out and buying those records of, of artists they'd never heard about. And that, that's what it was all about, a three-minute 
commercial and five-minute commercials. Okay. Well, open our eyes with Earth, Wind, and Fire. They were stuck. The only place it was selling was in the Northwest. So when I pitched them on my weekend with, I could tell that the guy wasn't listening to me. I could tell that he was talking at me, but he wasn't really listening to what it was that I was saying. And I could hear him flipping papers. And he says, why are you guys selling so many records up there? I said, what do you mean? He said, why are you guys selling so many? He said, the record's dead. I said, are you sure the record's not selling any place else in the country? He said, no, it's dead. You guys are the only ones buying. Why are you guys buying so many? And we talked for a while, and then I thought, well, maybe it's the record that we're playing. So I called my music director, who was Robert Nesbitt, and Robert Nesbitt said, we're playing Kalimba song, which was a fast song. Kalimba, Kalimba. Da, 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 da. That's what we were playing in the summertime. Okay. So they they took all the national promotion on Open Our Eyes back, re-released it with Kalimba song, and boom, Earth, Wind, and Fire went global. Oh, my gosh. On a little radio station. That's yeah. an amazing story. Yeah, yeah a- I was real, I, I, I like that one. I like that because it was a great guy. I didn't, I've never met, I've never met any of them. I have lots of associates who did, uh, but when but when uh, Mr. White passed on, uh, I sent that story to a friend of mine who was a platter, um, Jessica Taylor, who okay. knew uh, his cousin. She got the story to his cousin, and uh, I was pleased about that. Well, you know, it's all about connections because yeah, it's all about connections because I met you through Elmer Hopper of the Platters, and I met Elmer through right. Glenn Satola, who's a legendary musician. And I'll tell you, you know, sometimes Facebook really comes in handy, and you make some great connections with some great people. I'm I'm totally surprised. I'm totally surprised. And what I'm doing with Facebook is I'm going to be I'm going to be putting some art pieces on. I think next month. Specifically for the holidays, they'll be selected. Selected. They'll be eleven by seventeen on cardstock poster type images. They'll okay. run. They'll run about forty five bucks with with uh, with shipping. I I didn't. I had them priced less than that, but a but a, a designer from Nordstrom uh, snatched uh, one out of my hand one time and said and told me she said they're worth they're worth forty bucks. So. I yeah, complain. charge what you're worth. That's right. Charge what you're worth. You know, because your 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 photography is very. It's yeah. interesting. You know, it's, you it's, know, it's. I I just like for people to have them, and and you know, and I you know, I I, I want people to have them. So I was had it quite about mm, about forty percent less than that, and because I wanted people to have them. So, right. Well, you can autograph um, them though this way, you know. Well, they're they're not. Well, I've, I've got another one that's that's a, a better quality uh, that will be done uh, inkjet uh, process. Those will be autographable, silver autograph, and then the, the the big ones, two feet by three feet, they'll be gold autographed. Well, sounds so, sounds like a the good prices go up. That's right. Sound yeah, signing gold, good plan. Uh, tell me about spare change and the art game. Oh, spare change. That change is something that came to me uh, one time, and I and I uh, it, it came to me. I, I, I was looking at a chessboard, and I thought to myself, you know, if 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 people could could take the change out of their pocket and play the game, one person being here, the other person be tail, tails, whether they play it chess style or checker style or any any other style that they know, and. When they bump people, they keep the money. It could be a fun game. And so I just called it, so I designed a board uh, that, 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 that you can play that with as well as an art piece. So you can hang it on the wall when you're done. It's an art piece. And it's, it's, I was over at a friend of mine, and I'd forgotten that he'd gotten one. Uh, he was a former Seattle Supersonic, uh, uh, Vesta Marshall. He was also a, uh Oklahoma Sooner. And I was over at his place, and we would we were talking and stuff, and I looked over, I said, oh, you got spare change. He said, oh, yeah, he, he, he had, had it and framed it and had it hanging on the wall, and, and he likes board games, and so when he gets together with friends, they play, they play with the change they have in their pocket. Just a fun. Just no, that's a, a fun idea. A little bit different. Little yeah, bit. Fun, that's a fun idea. How about a day yeah, with... Yeah, a little bit more fun. Yeah, a day with Duke and Catherine Murray? Oh, boy. That was something. Duke Murray... Um, was one of the four people that created color film, as I understand it. 
when he was with DuPont. And then he went uh, and got in the motion picture business. He was with, um, oh shoot, I can't remember the name of the, the uh, it'll come to me, the name of the, the studio first. And then ultimately he became the executive vice president of Paramount, as I know. Duke Murray is responsible for Shogun. And he told me how he did it, and he told me these different things. Uh, now, Kathleen Murray, even at the time that I spent that day with them, she had she had, had an acting studio with Agnes Moorhead. I partnered with Agnes Moorhead. And she, at the time, even at the time, was giving uh, lessons to uh, women. Uh, Bob, is it Bob Lemon? Is that right? Ha! Can't remember <laughs> names. Bob Lemon. Okay. Uh, he, was, uh, he was kind of... Uh, Some Like It Hot. He was in the Some Like It Hot. And uh, uh, he was still taking, it was it was kind of a thump upside the head because they were, you know, he was elderly. I mean, he was probably in his seven. he's still taking lessons, still studying. And, and that's why he's, he was so good. But, but the stuff that Duke told me about production, and uh, it's one of those kind of things where, Every every word, every syllable that came out of his mouth was important, and and, I, and of course you couldn't keep it, you know, information overload, uh, big time. And so I remember I called him back and I said, now Duke, because there was one thing that was outstanding to me, and I asked him, you know, what it was. Could he repeat that for me? And I hated to do that. I was embarrassed to do it, and I hated to to trouble him. But he uh, he he did. He he was. He was the guy who did show. I know he did Shogun. He was the producer of Shogun and some other films. Pathé Films is the one that I was trying to think of where he started. Errol Flynn was there. Pathé Films still has that film that Errol Flynn, Errol Flynn never finished. And Duke was uh, Duke was the. I think he was the president of Pathé when Errol Flynn was was there. I know Kathleen knew him. Kathleen, uh, wonderful, wonderful people. Wonderful, very, very, very seasoned, um, humble people. Very humble. Now, I'm glad you're sharing all these stories with Roy Rogers and Dale Evans and all of that. Yep, and I, I love hearing all these stories. We've got about two minutes to, to close on the show. Can you just tell me about the effects of your grandparents on you? I, my grandparents were from a little town called uh, Garrison, Texas, about 20 miles east of Nacogdoches, going toward the Louisiana border. I only saw them in my lifetime about 12 times. They, they passed in a, in, a, in, a, in a house fire. My grandfather was going to be 94 that year. My grandmother would have been about 89. But the, the effect that they had on me was that there was a lot of times when I went to make decisions, I could have taken the low road. But I considered them and thought about what they would want and what would, what would embarrass them or what, would, what they would be proud of in, in a whole bunch of decisions when I was adult. And it kept me on the high road. It's just that simple. I always, they always, you know, and, and I have cousins, first cousins, same thing. You know, what would, what would they think, you know, about this decision? And, of course, you know, didn't they all, didn't always do that. I made a lot of bad decisions. But but, yeah. but my grandparents, uh, just the fact that they were there saved me a lot of time. I get that. I was close to my grandparents, especially on my mother's side. And my grandmother in particular I was very close to. And so if it, whenever it came to making a big, big decision after my grandma had passed in the you know late 90s, I would say, what would grandma do you know, in this kind of situation? And yep. it, it always That's kept me straight because I go, what? Cause she was such a class Isn't act. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, because you, you, if you think that way, then you go, okay, I'm going to make I, a I good decision. All the time. I tell them. I tell people all the time, grandparents are really important. Yep, I would I would agree. Now, let me ask you, how can people get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you, and how can they see your artwork or your photography? Well, I'm going to I'm going to be posting some on Facebook. People have nagged me for 50 years, so I'm going to post it on Facebook, uh, and, and and most likely in September. And um, they can reach me on Facebook. They can find me on Facebook. And if they will say the Lori Zook show, then I'll know that who they are. <laughs> okay. And I'll I'll communicate back with them as soon as possible. Um, otherwise, uh, my uh, email is Danny Shedwin at yahoo dot com. Right, S H E D W I N, Danny Shedwin. Yes, ma'am. All right, very good. Say and Bill's baby boy. <laughs> well, I want to thank you. Thank you again so much for doing the show with me. Um, you and I were, will keep in touch. And uh, I'll put some of your I hope so. yeah I'll put some of your contact information up you know so once the show is has aired in his podcast people will be able to find you and it's been a, a real pleasure and thank you so much pleasure was all mine Lori thank you thank you Danny and join us next week on the world of Lori Zook.
Central Payment, your number one credit card merchant service provider in the industry. Providing e-commerce solutions, POS systems, standalone terminals, mobile apps, and much more, call Central Payments' James Carner at 813-777-4332. Looking for the lowest rates in the industry and number one customer service? Call Central Payments' James Carner at 813-777-4332. That's James Carner, 813-777-4332. Consumers, do you have bad credit? Can't purchase a house or car? Paying too much in interest on your credit cards and loans? Scammed by credit repair companies? There is hope. You can get back on track and do it the right way. Call Credit Education Consultants today at 813-500-6064. That's 813-500-6064. Or go to CreditEducationConsultants.com now and get the help you need. Don't delay. Call today. Mortgage reps and realtor inquiries are also welcomed. Hi, this is Dave Mason, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee and a founding member of Rock Our Vets. Please help us support our military veterans and also the families of fallen law enforcement and firefighters across the country. You know, there is an average rate of 22 veterans per day that take their own lives due to the results of PTSD and over 1,000 calls to the suicide hotline a day from our veterans. Help us to help with making their transition from military to civilian life less of a struggle. We currently have a never-ending gift card drive that allows us to get food, clothing, and basic needs to these men and women that are out on the streets, homeless. We also provide laptop computers to veterans across the country that are returning to school for their educational pursuits or need them to start and manage a business. If your company has laptops that are no longer being used, donate them to Rock Our Vets. We also have some rock and roll memorabilia from myself and many other artists that have stepped up to support these efforts. And it's all available on the website at www.rockourvets.org. Links for everything can be found on the website. And remember, we are an all-volunteer 501c3 foundation. The money donated goes directly to our veterans, and you can actually see the results if you follow us on Facebook. Thank you for your time.